Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for Christagenia Internet Radio. Right now, it's early Saturday morning, at least where I am, on October 5th, and we have Sven Longshanks here with us, and we're going to have a discussion on the Book of Jasher, or perhaps I should say the Books of Jasher. There were actually two of them published in, in the, the 18th or 19th centuries, originally in Britain, and they are both spurious. They're both um, basically no better than any Jewish romance novel ever was. Hello, Sven. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Uh, thank, thanks for inviting me on once again. Yeah, I mean, the, the Book of Jasher, obviously it is it is spurious, but people do still use it. I noticed there were comments over at Rosette's Bitshoot channel and somebody was talking about uh, Noah's wife, Nehemiah, and I thought, well, I know where that comes from. And, and it comes from the Book of Jasher. And I've seen people that follow Ben Classen, I've seen them use the Book of Jasher. And I've even seen it come up in some early Christian I- identity speakers and and in British Israel. So, you know, I think it's quite important that we demolish it. And I have to, I, well, I'm very embarrassed to say that um, years ago when I first came across Christian identity, I got hold of the book of Jasher and I quite enjoyed reading it because, you know, it seemed like the the sons of Jacob Israel were like superheroes. You know, some of them could run really fast and some of them had a really loud voice and you know, it was quite entertaining, but I didn't really look any further into it than that. But when you do actually look into it, I think it gives a, a real insight into what is important to the Jews, because it was it was a Jewish forgery that was produced by uh, some Jewish printer, and he claimed that uh, an eighth-century British priest called Alcuin translated it from Hebrew into British, which which is all nonsense. But when you actually look at what's in there, I mean, you would imagine if it's a Jewish forgery, it would say things like uh, Moses was given an oral teaching and this was passed on down through the generations. And there's no mention of that. But what there is mention of is lots and lots of race mixing. And this wasn't important to the church at the time. I don't believe the church was saying anything about that. But it was obviously important to this Jew that wrote this and it almost seems to me as if he was trying to preempt Christian identity he was trying to obfuscate the these particular issues I've taken some notes of them because he wanted to disprove that interpretation of the Bible and that interpretation of the Bible just wasn't really about at that time I think British Israel may have just started to come about in about 1850 but Christian identity really didn't take off I don't think until 1950 so it's you know it's interesting to me that he was trying to disprove things that people weren't talking about at the time so obviously the Jews knew that this interpretation was there in the Bible and they wanted to preempt it and they wanted to distract people from it and, and come up with an alternative explanation just in case the Goyim chanced upon this which I think is you know it's it's that's the most interesting thing about this book to me anyway. Well, well, that's true. It's we have a few things to um, clarify before we really get rolling. But, but that's absolutely true. People are fascinated by hidden knowledge or knowledge that they think may have been suppressed. 
And that just opens the door for all sorts of spurious books, myths, tales, books that were rejected 1,800 years ago by Christians, such as the Gnostic Gospels, right? The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of, of, of um, or the Revelations of Peter. These are all Gnostic writings that were, were created by the Jews at Alexandria, who were the, the Gnostics. They were the preponderance of the Gnostics. And that they created these false narratives and false gospels in order to poison the well of Christianity. Now, most of those works, that they, they were all rejected in, in 1,800 years ago, and, and most of them were, were lost, and it seemed that they were lost permanently until they got dug out of the Egyptian desert at, at um, Nag Hammadi uh, maybe 100 years ago. <laughs> and they've made a comeback. And they've spurned a, a huge cottage industry of, of that that one novelist. I forget his name. It's probably not worth not worth repeating. That one novelist who, who wrote a whole series of books based on these Gnostic gospels, and and it, it's just um, Dan Brown. Is that it? Dan Brown. Dan Holy Brown. Yeah, yeah, that's the clown. Um, they rhyme, and there's a reason for it. That that that's. People are fascinated by that, and and it's all myths and and fairy tales. The same thing with the Book of Jasher. There were actually two books of Jasher, and I have copies of both of them in front of me. And early in my Christian identity studies, I don't know when I had the first Book of Jasher. It, it's not dated. It's one of my few books that I didn't date. And I think that's because I read it in an afternoon and decided that it was abs I, I wrote on the front of it, absolutely phony forgery. That's what I wrote on the front of it. This book of Jasher was published in Bristol in 1829. And this is the one that was supposedly brought to Britain by the Bishop Alcuin who was a famous abbot of Canterbury or whatever in the 8th century. This book claims that Alcuin went to the Holy Land and brought this Hebrew book called Jasher back with him and translated it. And that translation was, was lost until it was rediscovered in the 18th century and published. Now, the copy I have claims to have been, it's a copy of a book that claims to have been published in 1829. Now, on top of this, there's a second book of Jasher. And that first book of Jasher isn't very popular. But I can only say that I must have attained it from some Christian identity book publisher or another. I just don't remember who. I have no clue. And of course, the book doesn't say or I'd be able to tell you. Well, anyway, this second book of Jasher, according to the copy I have, which was published by Artisan Publishers, the same people who publish all of E. Raymond Katz's material, they also push this book of Jasher. And they push it as if it's a legitimate book. And they printed it 
it, it's a reprint of something from 1887 printed in Salt Lake City. And Artisan Publishers reprints it and sells it. My copy is a 1997 printing. And the book purports to have been translated into English from the Hebrew in 1840. And it has all kinds of certificates from um, what's supposed to be a, a short list of scholars that were all written in 1840. And in the translator's preface, he mentions that first book of Jasher. And, and the first book of Jasher does assume that Jasher is a person. And it presumes to have been printed by an ancient Israelite man named Jasher. And, and at the very end of the book, it says that Jasher had made an end of speaking he called unto him Jazer, his eldest son, and he said unto him, Build now an ark that I may put therein this testimony, and do thou lay it up in the city of Jezer. And Jazer built an ark of gopher wood and brought it to his father, and Jasher put the book therein which he had written. So it, it pretends to be written by a man named Jasher. So the second book. The second Jasher in the translator's preface is actually critiquing this first book of Jasher and using that mistake and a few other things to prove that the first book of Jasher, the earlier publication, is spurious. And it mentions it. And it mentions Alcuin and, and the whole story. And, and the translator wrote to the editor of the London Courier in November last he was not aware that the copy of Jasher announced in the Bristol Gazette as an important discovery had reference to that fictitious book. So this new book of Jasher is published in 1840 and claims to be translated into the English from the Hebrew in 1840. But that Hebrew doesn't exist. It is non-existent. And this book is also spurious. From think, front to back, it's spurious. I think uh, Alcuin as well, he was from the 8th century, and they're saying that he translated it into English, you know, King well, James English. How could he have done that in the 8th century? That, right. They're, they're saying that he translated the first book of Jasher, the spurious one. The first book of Jasher is spurious. And that book, which is spurious, which was probably written in the eighteen in, in the eighteenth century, in the seventeen hundreds. That book claims that Alcuin had translated it, you're right, into King James English, because it's written in basically what we should call King James English. <laughs> and of course that's not that that's not possible. There is no King James English. Alcuin would have written in Latin. It's shameful that um, Christian identity publishers are, are publishing this stuff. It, it's also available on Sacred Texts, the online archive that has a, a lot of um, pseudepigrapha and apocrypha on there, and it's and it's got this book of Jasher right. in there as well, and it's it's a total forgery. Right. Well, this big book of Jasher, the book that most identity Christians understand, 
as the Book of Jasher, was supposedly translated from Hebrew by by this um, particular translator in 1840. And it's just as spurious as the one by Alcuin, or, or the one it claims to be by Alcuin, which could not possibly have been by Alcuin. Because Alcuin did not write in King James English, in 17th century English. So it, it's that they're both um, rather ridiculous. But what we're what what I think we're addressing today is this 1840 book of Jasher, and and the translator of that book does not give his name. He doesn't give a name. The the the, the translator of this book, who supposedly translated from Hebrew, doesn't give a name. So he's unknown. But then again, the Hebrew is also unknown. There is no Hebrew Jasher. Well, maybe Where we they could just, have gotten this from is, is incredible. Maybe we should just point out this, there, Bill, um, you know, that the, there is reference to a book of Jasher in the Old Testament, but that's lost. Yes, there is. There are two references to the book of Jasher in the Old Testament. It probably means book of the upright or something similar but it is lost it, it's permanently lost there there is no book of jasher i wrote in um that now early on in, in my studies i thought that the book of jasher and and admittedly i read it in 1999 i had only been studying christian identity for a little over two years at that time and at that time, I thought that there were elements of truth in the book of Jasher, but that the book was corrupted and, and perverted and, and added to, and interpolated, because there are things in Jasher that, that sound very plausible. There are. But there's a lot of things in Jasher that are just straight horse manure, that they're straight garbage especially the way it reads about the early lives of the patriarchs. It reads like a Jewish Superman comic strip. Like you said, they could run very fast. It, and it, if I recall from reading the book of Jasher in 1999, it said that Naphtali could run so fast that he ran on the top of the grain yeah. across farmer's fields. He could run on the top of the grain and, and, like Judah could jump over a wall that was like thirty cubits. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, yeah, just like a super, and, and, just like a superhero comic. And and these twelve patriarchs, when they were young men, that they had all these superpowers and they conquered entire cities by themselves. And and that's absolutely contrary to the spirit of Jacob that that's exhibited in the Book of Genesis. Well, they don't like Jacob. Jacob. They make, oh no, Joseph rather. They make Joseph out to be a crybaby. He's made out to be a crybaby in it. So obviously the Jews really didn't like Joseph for some reason. But sorry, go on, go on about Jacob there. I got mixed up between Jacob well, and well, Joseph. Well, right. I, I mean, the spirit of Jacob in, in Genesis, if, if you see, he relied on Yahweh alone to protect and preserve him. And he was angry at the assault that some of his sons had made on Shechem, 
So it's contrary to the spirit of, of the Israelites and Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jasher has a, a completely opposite view of Jacob and his sons, where they are basically superheroes that are destroying all the cities of Canaan by themselves. Just 12 of them. So, so it, it's the book of Jasher in that respect is pure garbage. It, it's a Jewish super superhero comic strip. That's how it reads. In that respect, I think there was a Masonic oh, I, influence as well because there's there's a lot about um, Enoch in there, and Enoch is quite revered by the Freemasons, and they they link him with Hermes and and Thoth, and you know there's there's like whole chapter devoted to. Enoch in this book of Jasher and and also the Rosicrucians said that it was a, a, an inspired text I think in about 1930 and the Rosicrucians were another secret society so I think there was Masonic influence with it as well they were trying to ingratiate themselves with the secret societies with this book well, well you are you, you are correct I believe in, in your um, theory I'll, I'll call it a theory that perhaps this book was written to derail um, the budding identity beliefs, which were budding. I, I mean, this book was was translated from Hebrew in 1840, right? It appears that the earliest publication date I have for it is 1887. Now, even if it was published in 1840, that is right around the same time that John Wilson began preaching what became known as British identity. Right around 1840. And this book has historical anachronisms in it. Not just a couple, but a lot, which are basically just fantastic. And, and if you want, before you want to talk about the, the content of Jasher, I'll just give a few of the historical anachronisms. And if I go to page, um, I marked a few page numbers off real quick. Page 214. Okay. This is from chapter 74 of, of the book of Jasher. And, and it said, and the men of Latinus saw Ush Pezina, the daughter of Asdrubal, and praised her unto Latinus, their king. And Latinus, Latinus took Ushpenazer for a wife, and he turned back on his way to Kittim. So Kittim, it, in, in the first century, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Roman Empire the Empire of the Kittim. And that idea had Kittim was one of the sons of Japheth who, who lived in the Isles of the Sea. And that idea had stuck with rabbinical Jews all throughout the Talmud and, and, and much later history. Now, there were also among the, the rabbinical Jews the idea that the Romans were linked to the Edomites, to Esau. And when you when you read these later chapters in the book of Jasher, it actually claims that the the Latinus that the Romans conquered 
the Edomites. And the Edomites never had a king because the Romans, the, the Latinus, the, the land of the Kittim, these Kittim people who, who Latinus is obviously a reference to a Roman king, is one of them, that they ruled over East, over Edom. And, and that establishes that rabbinical link between the Edomites and the Romans that the early Talmudists had. And that Jews ha- have kept in their Talmud and, and keep in their, their, their minds to this very day. Well, this Latinus goes off and starts a war. And, and, and it was after the death of Asdrubal, the son of Angius, when Latinus had turned back to his land from the battle, that all the inhabitants of Africa rose up and took Annibal. That's Hannibal the son of Angius, the younger brother of Asdrubal, and made him king instead over his brother, over the whole land of Africa. And he reigned, he resolved to go to Kittim, meaning to Italy, to fight with the children of Kittim to avenge the cause of Asdrubal, his brother. And, and this is the story of Hannibal and Hasdrubal, who were the kings of Carthage in the second century BC, but the book of Jasher puts these events in the days of Moses before the Exodus. There were no Italians in those days. There was no Latinus. There was no Carthage. There was no Carthage until according to legitimate histories, there was no Carthage like Josephus there was no Carthage until the 8th century BC, when Carthage was founded as a colony from Tyre. This book made an entire historical anachronism, and, and, and it would serve to refute Christian identity. It refutes CI, but it's worse than that, because... Late, and, and that's chapter 74 of, of Jasher. And it's worse than that because it, in chapter, let me see, chapter 90, in chapter 90 of Jasher, we have an account of the Kittim or, uh, under, uh, under an King Abianus invading Britain. And it puts that in the time of Joshua that these Kittim invaded Britain. (laughs) And and that's where it also says in chapter 90 that the Latinus went and and he didn't only, Latinus didn't only go and conquer Britain. He also went and ruled over the, um, the Edomites. And for many years, there was no king in Edom and their government was with the children of Kittim, which is Latinus, and their king. And it was the 26th year after the children of Israel had passed the Jordan. So, 26 years after the children of Israel came into the Jordan is in the time of Joshua, and that's when Jasher has the Romans invading Britain and ruling over Edom. And that's not nowhere to be found in scripture. That that's just a, a 
total lie. They took first century BC events and second century BC events, and they wrote them into this book of Jasher as if those events happened in the days of Moses and the days of Joshua. The, the other major, there's a lot of historical acronyms in here, but the other major historical acronyms exist in the early part of Jasher in chapter 10, where, where you have um, Frankum mentioned as the, the descendants of, the, of Gomer. That is a rabbinical idea from the Middle Ages that the Germans and the Franks descended from Gomer or Ashkenaz. So here it's Gomer. And, and then you have the families of the Bulgars and the Angoli, who would be the Angles, who came from, according to this, from, from these same children of Goma and, and Togarma, Togarma, right? Togarma, and, and these names are, Togarma and Gomer are found in Genesis chapter 10. But none of these other people existed when the events of Genesis chapter 10 took place in 3200 BC. But Jasher also uses the Masoretic text, which would place those events in 2300 BC, right? So we also have mention of Macedonia and, and, and with these Genesis 10 people, and, and we have mention of the Lombards, the Lombardi who dwell opposite the mountains of, of Job and Shabathmo, and they conquered the land of Italia. They had the Lombards, the Franks, and <laughs> the Italians, or Italy, all in the days of the Genesis chapter 10 patriarchs. And, and you know, any um, amateur historian, of antiquity knows for a fact that the Lombards did not invade or come into Italy for another 2000 years <laughs> or 3000. So depending on you're using the Masoretic or, or the Septuagint chronology, it's another 3000 years before the Lombards can be conceived of having appeared in Europe. And no tribe called the Lombards existed in these days. And there was no Italy. Homer, who wrote in, in the 7th century BC, he didn't even mention Italy. Because Italy was not a, a place. Homer wrote of the Isles of the West in the Western Sea, meaning the western part of the Mediterranean. But he, it, Italy was not on his map. Because it wasn't Italy yet. Yeah, the land was there, but it wasn't Italy. Yeah, there were some sparse Greek settlements in diverse places there, but it still wasn't Italy yet. It wasn't Italy for several hundred years after Homer, or, or at least a couple of hundred. So, wow. Or after the time that Homer was writing, actually. So... The Book of Jasher has these historical acronyms in it that are, are used to basically try to pull the pillars out from under Christian identity, like you said, and, and make it impossible. And they took 
all these historical events of much later time and move them back to the days of, of Moses and, and Noah. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. The book is, it is ludicrous. No identity Christian should accept this book. And I know there's a lot of other things that you want to talk about, about the content of, of Jasher, but, but no identity Christian should ever accept this. Well, I, just, I just think it's insulting as well to the, you know, the, the people who wrote the genuine chronicles because it casts doubt on them as if the people that were writing, like say the, the chronicles of England, the brute, as if, as if they were just making it up because there are references in that to, um, something happening and this, and, and at this time, Eli was high priest in, in Jerusalem. And it's talking about something like King Molmatine or Molmatine writing his laws. And it makes reference to what was happening in the Old Testament. So by this spurious book of Jasher, by this Jew creating this book, it also casts doubt on the authenticity of of other books that purport to be ancient that, you know, that, that are far more credible. That because you've got this Jewish nonsense that's added in there, it casts doubt on those books as well. If people fall for it, because this is a thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got a long list of things that I pulled out from it, mainly things that I, I think uh, they put in there deliberately to discredit a Christian identity. Because the church itself, the mainstream church, wasn't going along with Christian identity interpretations. Um, and you would imagine that the things that would be on the mind of the Jews were trying to prove their credibility, trying to prove the credibility of the Talmud. But that doesn't seem to be so when you read this. Um, I mean, the, the first bit that I noticed, that concerns Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are both conceived after the expulsion from the garden and it, it's not the reason for the expulsion and we know that there's confusion over those verses um, in the book of Genesis and so the Jews definitely come down on the side of well Cain and Abel were they were created after the expulsion and then right after that Cain and Abel's offspring intermarry they intermarry together which is you know which is a central point of, of two seed line Christian identity is that Cain's, Cain and his offspring were cursed and they were, they were of mixed race and Abel and his offspring were the, the, the daughter, the, the sons of Eve, basically, rather than being the, the sons of Cain. And it was the interbreeding between the two that caused, caused, um, caused the wars. And, and, and right away they, they have this. And then you end up with Noah taking a wife of the sister of Tubalcan. So the mongrels would have been continued through Noah's family, which I think is, you know, is, is really quite as essential to Christian identity that Noah was, was pure in his generations. That's what it says in, in the Bible. And yet this Jew, well, right. for some reason, wanted to cast aspersions on that. that that's, you know, Noah being pure in his generations would have to extend to Noah's sons. That's why Noah was chosen. And his wife, obviously, his wife would have had, would have to have been pure as well. So why would they cast aspersions on that? Because that was that was you know Noah being pure in his generations, being pure in his race. That wasn't the interpretation that the church had, but this Jew, for some reason, that that made this translation, he wanted to make it seem that Noah's offspring were all mixed race, for some reason. I mean, this is this is this is what I mean by this. Why I find it interesting, because why why would he want to do that? 
Why, why would he want to disprove that? Nobody was really talking about that at the time. The church certainly weren't, weren't talking about it. And yet he thought it was important to try and say that Noah's offspring were, were all going to be, all going to be mixed race. Well, well, basically that's the same argument that Jews make uh, against Christian identity today. Oh, there's no racial purity. We're all bastards. We're all mixed. They make those same arguments today. Well, uh, later on, it has the all the pretty much all the descendants of Jacob Israel marry Canaanites. Uh, I mean, um, Jacob Israel has to go off and marry someone of of his own people, but all his sons, they're quite free to just go off and and marry Canaanites. And and that's perfectly fine. And again, why would they put that in there? Was the was the church making a big point of saying that um, uh, all the Israelites married other Israelites? Well, no. The the, the church was um, saying that uh, Ruth was a Moabite, and not meaning that she was just from the geographical area of Moab, but she was an Israelite. But saying that Ruth was a was a Moabite. So why were they? You know why? Why was he putting this in there, saying that they all married these these Canaanites? You know, it, it, it's to it was to disprove, I think, to to cast doubt on people that then said, "Well, hang on a minute. If you look at this, the, the law was that they had to marry their their own kind, and they had to marry marry their own people." So he's trying to cast aspersions on that, and it, it, there's race mixing that goes that goes right the way through it. Another um, another instance is is the way that they talk about Abraham. And they make Abraham's birth out to be similar to Christ's. There are wise men that are following a star. And I think that was, that was done in order to minimize the importance of Christ and to increase Abraham's status because the Jews like to claim that, that they come from Abraham and, and all the rest of it. And then they make out that Abraham deserved God's covenants because he was so clever, which, you know, which, which negates God's grace. I mean, it, it, he was a good he was a good accountant or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. Well, he create he, he creates monotheism. Abraham creates monotheism. I mean, monotheism was the oldest belief that that we actually had. If if you look back, I mean, even the Egyptian belief started off with one god. Abraham didn't create monotheism, yes. uh, but it, but he he, he he creates it because he realizes that the sun and the moon aren't gods, and and neither are the idols of wood or of stone or what have you. And and again, that shows you this this modern view of of what an idol is rather than what it actually was back then and idolatry. And then it, it's got Abraham walking around in the fiery furnace, which. Uh, minimizes Daniel and then Abraham converts all the people of Haran to the worship of Yahweh and you know where, where does it where does it say in the in the Old Testament that um, Abraham or the Israelites were to go out and convert the people around them they, they were told not to do that that that's what the Jews were doing in the in the second century BC and that then the Christ, well, Christianity well, the picked Joshua, up on I'm sorry that the book of Joshua informs us that Abraham's fathers were pagans they were pagans on the other side of the flood meaning the other side of the euphrates river where haran was they were pagans they worshiped strange gods or or, or false gods it's right in the, the, the book of joshua it, it might be chapter 25 let let me try to pull this up and abraham was told to get out of there he wasn't told to convert anybody. 
And Joshua said to all the people, this is Joshua chapter 24. Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Now that flood must be the, the its stream or river in, in the Hebrew. And that that's um, the word Nahar. And it means the river. And it's a reference here to the river Euphrates. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, and meaning to come into the land of Canaan, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. So that's absolutely contrary to what the scripture tells us in Joshua. Abraham didn't convert anybody in Haran. He brought people with him from Haran, and I imagine that they were converted ultimately to follow Abraham's God because he was the head of the household, and he was also commanded to circumcise them all. But that's years later. That That's 15 years later. That's that, That's not when he was in Haran. That was when he was in the land of Canaan. Well, later on, it even has um, Yahweh making promises with uh, Esau and with the Edomites, and the Edomites call on the name of the Lord, and, and he answers them. And, you know, as we know, in the Old Testament, God only has this, this relationship with the Israelites. He doesn't have a relationship with any other people. He doesn't, doesn't give his law to any other people. And yet this pushes this idea that uh, it, it's a universal God that, that talks to everyone and Abraham and the Israelites, they were to convert the Canaanites and it was perfectly fine for them to marry them. Um, one bit that really didn't surprise me, Pharaoh does actually take Sarah as his wife, which is in the, um, it's in the New International Version. It, it gives that impression, but the King James Version, um, Pharaoh didn't take Sarah as his wife. He wanted to, but he didn't. And then we get to Ishmael and Ishmael. Under the law, I'm sorry, under the law, if Pharaoh had taken Sarah as his wife, if he'd had intercourse with her, Abraham would not have been able to take her back. The law wasn't given until later, but Abraham would not have been able to take his wife back if another man had her. That's an abomination to God. That's great. That's another good argument for it. I mean, I've always argued that if you actually read what it says in the King James Version, it doesn't say that um, Pharaoh took her as his wife. He wanted to, but he didn't. And that, that's that's what it says. And then you got the New International Version. It's a very apt name for it, the Internationalist Version. And, and that claims that he did take Sarah as his wife. And obviously the Jews like to slander the people in the Old Testament, as they do in the Talmud. So here, Pharaoh does take Sarah as his wife. But then we get to Ishmael, and Abraham goes to visit Ishmael, and he's not very happy at the way that he's treated by Ishmael's wife. So he leaves a message for him, and the message is that he has to go and get himself a better wife. And where does Ishmael go to go and get himself a better wife? To the Canaanites. As if the as if the the Canaanites are, are blessed as being good people, for Abraham's son to take a wife from. In actual fact, Abraham himself goes and takes himself a wife from the Canaanites as well. It says that Keturah was a was a Canaanite woman, which you know is impossible because the Canaanites are accursed. And then you then you get you get to um, the bit where 
Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. And the reason for that is because Satan convinces God to do this, which, you know, really shows that the author has got no understanding of the real reason for that happening and, and the importance of that happening, which we went into in a, in a lot of detail in the Bible basic series about how important it was that Isaac was, was, um, prepared for the sacrifice so that he was, he was given that. I've forgotten the actual word for it now, Bill, not, not a blessing. Sanctified, that's it. Sanctified so that all the issue that then came from Isaac was also sanctified and sanctified to God. And, and, and that was the importance of him having to go on that altar. And also because Abraham had already been promised that many nations would, would come from his son, that he had the faith, his faith was tested whether he believed in that promise or not by putting his son on that right. altar. And this author's got no understanding of that. Oh, it must have just been Satan having a bet with God. In, incredible that this that it flies in the face of Scripture, and people read this stuff and they're fascinated by it, and they go off quoting it. Yeah, you know, even Clifton had quoted the Book of Jasher. He was fond of a passage in Jasher chapter four, and I did a review of his. Um, Identifying the Beast of the Field Part 5. I did that review in October of 2018. Oh, five days before the hurricane. And that, that changed my life. Well, well, I did that review and I didn't beat Clifton up. He, he had just passed within three months of the time I did that. I, I didn't beat Clifton up or criticize him for it. I, I had um, actually employed this at one time myself, this one passage in Jasher from Jasher chapter four. But in, in 2017, when I reviewed Clifton's um, special notices to all who deny two seed line part three in April of 2017, I, I, I was writing about the, the doctrine of sola scriptura. And I, I had listed um, scriptures that are missing and I said, for example, Jude quotes the writings of Enoch, but where are they in our scriptures? Where is the original book of Jasher or the book of the wars of Yahweh or the books of Gad the seer or Nathan the prophet or Edo the prophet or the sayings of the seers? All of these books were mentioned in the Old Testament, and today none of them are actually known to exist. So I made the assertion in April of 2017 that the real book of Jasher is not known to exist. And it took me, it took me a few years to um, spend a, enough time or to spend enough time thinking about Jasher, this book of Jasher to understand that it's just a complete fraud. Because when I first read Jasher, it was very early in my Christian identity studies and at that time, in, in 1998 and 1999, I had read a great amount of apocryphal literature. I, I, I read the books of the Book of the Bee, the Book of the Cave of Treasures, the books of Adam and Eve, book one, book two, book three, book four, all of them, the, the lost books of the Bible. That the I, I read everything I could get my hands on when I found CI. But I, what I didn't have, because I didn't read a Bible for the first time until 1997, maybe, the end of 97. 
after I had found the CI message. I read the Bible for the first time. I, but even by 99, I didn't have a firm enough foundation in scripture to really be able to see all the bullshit in the book of Jasher. Now, I did write in 99 in my copy that the book was seriously corrupted and perverted at an early time. And that's because I thought, and, and maybe that's because I was affected by others, but that's because I thought that there was a core of truth in Jasher. Well, of course there is, because the author did know something about the Bible, but it's all bull. It, it's all garbage. The book of Jasher is trash. It's a pernicious fraud. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wickedly evil, the, way, the things that it's trying to cast aspersions on, because they, they all bear relevance to <coughs> Christian identity. Right. It's corrupting the entire theme and, and meaning of the scriptures. I mean, the next bit I've got here is, is about Esau, and it's about Esau's birthright. And we know the Esau's birthright gets mentioned in the, in the New Testament. But Esau's birthright, according to the book of Jasher, is just a section of the burial mound in the field that Abraham bought. Is, is it nothing, nothing to do with, um, you know, him, him selling his, his, selling his birthright by marrying a, a Canaanite woman and giving his birthright away. It was just a section of the, of the burial mound in the field that Abraham bought. And then Esau goes well, out. Well, that's incredible oh. because in the Bible, the birthright is all the promises which Yahweh made to Abraham. That was Esau's birthright that Esau sold that came to Jacob. In Genesis chapter 26 or chapter 28, that, that's explicit. I think it's in 26. And Isaac, Genesis chapter 28, and Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of, of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee. That was Esau's birthright that Esau gave up that he despised. He sold it to Jacob and he, he had basically violated it when he did take wives of the daughters of Canaan. So the birthright's a little more than a plot of land in a cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> well he then goes just out just a little bit yeah you know, we get the Esau the, the stuff with Esau here gets gets even even better than that I mean Esau then goes out and he smites all the mighty men of Nimrod and in the end he kills Nimrod so they make Esau out to be a hero when Esau is is cursed by God and it's interesting that you said that they were linking Esau with the Romans because, as, as we know, it, it's, it's the Jews themselves that are uh, basically that are the Edomites, Edomites right? <laughs> yeah. So they're making they're trying to say on one hand that, as you say, that uh, Esau is linked with the Romans, but then uh, on the other hand, they're also making out Esau to be this big hero because they know that they're the ones that are actually related to Esau. And then you get Yahweh plays fertility treatment doctor with Laban. And he's already done this with members of Cain's family. 
and others, which, you know, minimizing the birth of Jacob to, um, Sarah when she was in her nineties or, or whatever it was. In fact, in the book of Jasher, Yahweh does this quite a few times, actually gives miraculous births to people. And then you, then you get, uh, the Israelites and the war with, with, uh, Sheshem that you mentioned earlier, Bill. And the Israelites take all the women of Sheshem and Simeon marries one. Reuben marries a Canaanite. I think he, I, I'm not sure if he actually did that in the Old Testament. I know one of them did. Simeon marries a Canaanite. Judah marries a Canaanite. Dan marries a Moabite. Gad marries a Canaanite. Naphtali marries a Canaanite. Asher marries an Ishmaelite. And Zebulon marries a Midianite. So he's basically saying, oh, it's perfectly fine to, uh, interbreed with these people that Yahweh had actually told you that you should be exterminating. Uh, and it basically, it says that it was only, um, it was only Jacob Israel that had to marry uh, another Shemite, someone from within uh, his extended family. And then we get to the phrase, as numerous as the sands of the sea, which is used in the covenant. Uh, and it, I believe it also says, and as the stars in the sky and as the sands of the sea, and your offspring will be as numerous as that. And at least five times that phrase is used in the book of Jasher. And in one instance, it's used just to describe just 500 men. That's all. And it makes me think that, you know, they were putting that in there as if that was a common phrase that was in use all the time. <laughs> it wasn't anything special. And that, uh, and it was, it was God would be exaggerating. So when God made that promise, it, it didn't actually mean there was that, that uh, the offspring would be massively numerous and enough to form nations but it was an exaggeration and it could just mean 500 people so it so it could just be the number the tiny number of jews that are around today and it, it's just it just seemed interesting to me that five times they used that phrase as numerous as the sands of the sea and do you, do you think that's suspicious bill did that strike you well, in well, any way right it's absolutely suspicious and then we get uh, Jacob Israel. He actually buys all the land of Canaan from Esau as it was rightfully Esau's and not Jacob's. So it wasn't that um, God made the promise to Jacob Israel that the land of Canaan would be his. It, it, he actually bought it from Esau. And then finally you get to Zepho, the son of Esau, and he says, remember the covenant God made with our father, etc. And then the Lord hearkens to Zepho. So again, it, it, it's making out that Yahweh is universal and these covenants weren't just with this one particular people. He made covenants with, with lots of people. It, it was nothing special. Race mixing is, is all okay. And it, it, it cast doubt on, on God's actual promise by using this, this phrase as the sands of the sea, as if that was a, like a, a common phrase that was used to exaggerate numbers. And I, I think all, all of those that, I, that I've got here, they're, they're all related to Christian identity in some way, and they're not really related to traditional church interpretations of what's actually said in the Bible. And I think it shows that the Jews were aware of the Christian identity interpretation, or this particular Jew was, and he wanted to preempt it, and he wanted to cast doubt upon it, and he, and he wanted to push a completely different interpretation of, uh, of what was there as well as possibly make money from, from selling this fraud. But, you know, I think that was, I think that's got to be, have been the reason for it really is to, it was to 
um, dissuade people from where British Israel was likely to go? Do you think? Well, well, absolutely. And, and, and it, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't really read the Bible. They only skim the Bible or they think they know what the Bible says, or maybe they read it once when they were young and, and they'll find something like the book of Jasher. And because they don't know the Bible that well, they become fascinated with the book of Jasher with all of this, um, extra hidden knowledge that they suddenly have and they run with it and they don't know the Bible, the scriptures well enough to understand that this book of Jasher is nothing but lies and why it's lies. That takes study. That takes the comparison that you've done here to, to be able to see that and think things through. And you have to know the Bible in order to make those decisions. So they get sucked in by this and they do get derailed and they end up in a rabbit hole and they're stuck there unless they sit and learn the scriptures themselves well enough to be able to see through the problems. There's one final bit here as well, actually, that I missed out. I mean, they, they as I say, they can't help smearing Old Testament characters and Isaac is seen sporting with his wife and this is after pimping her out to the Canaanite king and telling the Canaanite king that it, that it was his sister. I mean, it's basically saying that Isaac was seen lovemaking with his wife um, and, the, and the Canaanite king was annoyed about it because the Canaanite king had, had spent the last night with her. You know, it's, a, it's, it's on a par with the sort of things that are said in, in the Talmud about Noah being a, a drunken eunuch and Ham having sex with all the animals on the ark. Um, Adam, I think they say that he had sex with all the animals in, in the garden. And, you know, this, this author here just couldn't help letting his Jewishness in there by slandering Isaac in that way. Well, well right. I mean, it's the Jewish sex fantasy yeah. over and over again. The, the story of Adam and, and um, Ishtar or, 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 wow. Lilith, is it Lilith? I can't even think. The name Lilith. won't even come to me. Lilith. Yes, Lilith. Adam and Lilith. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. searching for the name in my mind. Adam and, and Lilith is, and, and the Ishtar legend is probably connected to Lilith as well, but Adam and Lilith, and, and, and they, they extrapolate one line of scripture where Eve gave unto her husband and he also ate. They extrapolate that into a, an entire um, sex orgy and romance novel. The Jew just runs with that stuff. If he can go there, he will. Every little line in scripture, lines that we don't any longer have the cultural context to understand very well. The Jew turns into an orgy, a sex fest, at, or a romance novel all the time. That They always run off into sexual fantasies every time they can and, and fabricate entire stories. That, that's the false accuser at work, accusing Isaac of pimping his wife out to a Canaanite king. That's the false accuser. That's what they do. And it shows you what's, impor that, what's important to them. The you mark know, of the Jew. 
it's like you know they've got a chance there to discredit certain bits of the bible or put their own spin on certain bits of the bible and what are the bits that they choose to add that spin to and it's it's sexual bits and it's it's racial bits and it's it's bigging up esau and you know you would imagine that they, maybe they would try to discredit jesus or as you know as a, as i mentioned before they would they would talk about the oral teachings that are being given by moses but but no it's it's discrediting the racial side right from the beginning till end something that wasn't even really talked about in the church that you, you wouldn't have thought it would have been seemed that important to the jews to to do that it's um yeah it's very strange but it, you know, with these, with the other books, Bill, I mean, you mentioned the books of Adam and Eve and, and some of the other ones that you read, the spurious ones. I mean, they were written much longer ago and there is some insight to, to be gained, I believe, into the way that people thought at that time. I mean, the, the books of Adam and Eve, that was probably written about 500 AD, I think. So you've got early Christians there and they've obviously forgotten some of the teachings of the Old Testament and they put their own ideas in there. But it also comes across that there was a there was a a ban on the children of Adam having intercourse with the children of Cain, and and that comes across in that book. So so it does have some value as into as in looking at what the people were talking about and how they thought at that time it was written. But this has got no value at all, being written in eighteen fifty and just being being written by a Jew. I mean, even the Gnostic Gospels. I mean, they've got some value because that shows us. The, the sort of th ways that people were trying to subvert Christianity at the time. And also you can look at the teachings that uh, Freemasons promote, and you can see a link there with, with the Gnostic teachings and also with this, all this promotion of diversity and equality and transgenderism. And that all goes back to these Gnostic teachings of there being no good and no evil. And, and it's all, it's all the same. Everything's equal. So, you know, they, they do have some value and maybe even this book has some value as to giving us some, some insight into the Jews thinking what, what is important to the Jew when they get a chance to subvert Christianity. What is the parts of Christianity they seek to subvert? The racial parts before anyone was even talking about it in Christianity. Absolutely. Race, sex, things like that. The sanctity of marriage, which the Jew has always sought to upset. Isaac pimping his wife out and imagining that God would accept that, that that's, that that's a, um, an attack on this, the, the sanctity of marriage, which the, the scriptures revere. This one part, I, I re, I remember this one part in the book of Jasher in the later chapters. I don't remember exactly where it is, but, um, the Pharaoh is the only survivor when the waters of the sea destroy the Egyptian army, which was in pursuit of the Israelites. It describes the Pharaoh alone as surviving that. And an angel came and picked up the Pharaoh and dropped him off somewhere in, in Mesopotamia, and he ruled over Mesopotamia for a long time. It's a comic book. The Book of Jasher is a comic book, and, and, and it is meant to basically, it, it's some Jew mocking the scriptures, is what Jasher is. 
and mocking history while pretending to be pious and holy. And, and that's what you've basically described here. It, it's some Jew mocking the scriptures, mocking Abraham, mocking the birthright, mocking Jacob, mocking the Israelites, um, promoting the Edomites, and, and basically mocking God. That's what the book of Jasher is. That's the only conclusion I have after listening to your descriptions here. What other conclusion could we come to? Well, it has no business being sold in Christian identity books, bookshops, does it? Or being published by them. Now, other apocryphal literature, not all apocryphal literature is equal. It, it all has to be evaluated in its own um, context, in its own place and time. The books of Adam and Eve, I think that there are elements to some of those books that are valuable because they give us insight into the way early Christians had thought. Just like you said, there's the Protovangelion of James. That, to me, is a spurious book. It has conflicts with scripture. There's parts of it I don't like, but it's valuable. And Clifton quotes one chapter from it very often in his writing. That's valuable because it gives insight into what it, the book is from the first or second century and gives insight into what early Christians thought about Genesis chapter three. And for that, it's valuable. Um, the third and fourth book of Maccabees are valuable for that same reason. And they may not necessarily be spurious, but they, because they weren't written to represent something that they're not. They were just early Christian writings that were recounting things that we find and expounding on things that we find in the historical book of Maccabees. So they're not really spurious in, in that sense. It's just that they're not canonical scripture. They're just early Christian writings. So they give us insight into what those early Christians thought. A lot of apocryphal works do that. A lot of apocryphal works are valuable for that reason. Other apocryphal works only um, add fables and myths and, and other things that are definitely not true and try to pose as legitimate books of scripture. The book of Judith is one of those. The book of Judith is just a Jewish fairy tale. The book of Esther, which actually made it into the Bible, is a Jewish romance novel. And, and there's each, it, it, there's a plethora that there's hundreds of apocryphal books and pseudepigraphal books, and they each have to be evaluated separately and understood in the context in which they were written. But they can't just be accepted as gospel especially when when they have major conflict with our um our scriptures which are proven through revelation to be true which are most most of the books of the bible i i would take the book of esther and throw it out and i would take the wisdom of solomon and put it in 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 the place of esther that's where it belongs so 
there's a few other apocryphal books that definitely belong in the scripture. The book of Enoch, as we have it, is definitely not reliable. It doesn't belong in the scripture. Perhaps the fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I prefer to cite, they seem to be reliable. They seem to be what the apostles were quoting. But the Ethiopic Enoch must be read with great care because it, it's not all. It's spurious. It, it has interpolations. It has other books that were added in under the name of Enoch. It, it's not all legitimate. I think the Book of Jubilees, that's a particularly Jewish book. But the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, I think that's that's quite a good one. I think that was written by the uh, early Christians. It's uh, it's an interesting read anyway, and it, it seems to fit in with uh, Christian identity thinking, if I remember right. Some of it does. Some of it does. But I, 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 I can't accept them as canonical by any means. No, no. The, the Book of Jubilees. This book of Jasher and the book of Jubilees both employ the Masoretic text chronology, which was not the early chronology of Scripture. The early chronology of Scripture is reflected in the Septuagint. And the chronology, which is apparent in, in the works of Flavius Josephus, is agreeable much more to the chronology of the Septuagint and not to the chronology of the Masoretic text. And, and if you look, and, and there's a chart that I made, there's two sets of charts on this on Clifton's site. There are text charts that Clifton made, and I made graphical charts from those text charts. And, and this is under an article on Clifton's site titled Patriarchal Chronology. And when you look at the Septuagint chronology, when Abraham lives, Terah is alive, but his grandfather Nahor is already passed, and every patriarch before him is already passed. But if you look at the Masoretic chronology, when Abraham is born, Terah is alive, his father, his grandfather is passed, but Sarug, his great-grandfather, is still alive, Ru his great-great-grandfather is still alive. Peleg is passed, but his great-great-great-grandfather Eber and his father Salah and, and his father Arphaxad and his father Shem are all still alive when Abraham is born. In fact, Eber and Shem live almost until the time that Abraham dies in the Masoretic text chronology. And that this is, I'm reading off a chart that I created, from a, a graphical chart that I created from Clifton's text charts that I made back in 2009. The, the Masoretic chronology is absolutely absurd because the narrative in Genesis by no way indicates that Noah, Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Ru, and Sarug are still alive during the life of Abraham. 
It's ridiculous. That is how in the book of Jasher, they have Esau being able to kill Nimrod. Now, Nimrod was at the same um, generation level, I believe. Cush begot Nimrod. So Shem begot Arphaxad. So Arphaxad and Nimrod are first cousins in the same generation. Arphaxad's still alive when during the life of Abraham. So why can't Nimrod still be alive during the life of Abraham? In the Masoretic text chronology. But in reality, Nimrod would have had to live like 700 years under the Masoretic chronology. He still would have had to live like 700 years to be killed by Esau. There's no basis for Nimrod living 700 years. And in the Septuagint chronology, even though some of the patriarchs did indeed live very long lives, hundreds of years, none of these people from the time of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth are alive during the life of Abraham. Wasn't the Septuagint the time chronology is, is much more agreeable to history and to common sense. Wasn't the, and the um, narrative of the scripture itself. Wasn't the Septuagint chronology fits the narrative itself, not the Masoretic text. I'm sorry. Well, it wasn't the, um, the length of a life, wasn't that limited to 120 years just before the flood? No, that's a misconception of Genesis chapter 6. I'm sorry. Right. It, in Genesis chapter 6, we, we see the... Um, the sin of the men being committed with, with these sons of God or fallen angels. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that. He also is flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. Now that is misinterpreted to inform us that men would only live for a 120 years after the flood. That's a misinterpretation, and that's easily seen because Abraham lived to be perhaps 180 years old. Isaac lived to be very old. Jacob lived to be at least 130 years old. Abraham lived um, 175 years, Terah 205, Nahor 304, Sarug 330. This is from the Septuagint. Ru, 339. Eber, 404. So we see many men after the flood lived longer than 120 years. But what it's really saying in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, is that from the time that these sins began to occur, until the time of the flood, it would be 120 years. So Noah had... 120 years to build the ark. That's what it's saying. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I wondered if I was right, uh, correct on that. I think that was just a, a common interpretation. Well, that was the British Israel interpretation. What you repeated was the British Israel interpretation. And, and that's been an interpretation with a lot of CI people. But it's not right. It's not right.
and it's easily refuted, as I just did. Where do you get the ages from there, Bill? Is that from where it tells you what, um, does it tell you what age they died or something like that? Well, well, right. It tells you how old they were when they died. It tells you how old they were when their first son was born, their birthright son was born, right? Yeah. Adam was um, in the Septuagint. He was 230 years when his son was born, and he lived 930. So Seth was 205 when his first son was born, Enos, and he lived 912. So we can deduce a chronology from that. I think we can also look at that and, and see that back then, obviously, we, we were much healthier than we are now. They, they kind of had disease around and, and people live for a lot longer. And gradually, the, the ages have got less and less and less to what we have now. And we've got more and more illnesses, more and more diseases, more and more genetic decay as things have corrupted from a, from a much more perfect start. I think it, it shows that as well by the decreasing uh, life length all the way through. And, and eventually the having to, because um, originally at the start, they could, they could marry their, their cousins. And now we have to marry much, much further apart and because it would be very harmful to do that. And if you look right back at the beginning, you've got um, Eve is created from Adam's rib. So you don't, you don't get much, much closer than that. So g genetically, I think, um, a far superior to, to what we are today in, in probably in muscle size and in intelligence, in, um, protection against disease and or probably be almost like supermen compared to us today. Do you think? Well, well, I mean, that's also what the ancient Greeks believed, that there was a golden age of man and a silver age of man and a bronze age of man or a first, second, third ages of men. The, the ancient Greeks actually tried to deduce that same thing through um, basically through common sense observation where they had access to the scriptures. They, they knew and had access to um, – Hebrew and Akkadian and Babylonian literature that all attest that in ancient times men had lived much longer lifespans and seemed to be, yet yeah, you had the heroic age where men seemed to be um, more capable and that came to an end and, and Hesiod goes through it and, and several Greek poets make mention of the same thing. So, so that Belief has been around a long time, but it's evident in our scriptures. Not all pagan beliefs are false, right? It's evident in our scriptures that at one time, men were much more capable and, and did live much longer. I mean, Noah built an ark, right? But there's also the inspiration of God in a lot of those things. And, and the pagans removed the inspiration of God from their view of those things but we can, can first we can understand that people that there were probably definite reasons why people lived much longer lifespans that had to do with um environment and nutrition and things like that that the planet has theoretically and and this seems to make sense done nothing but decay since the creation of God and, and that, that is in, in the, um, it's related to the sin of man. So 
we have multiple factors going on here. Today, we eat tons of foods that are unclean. We have tons of artificial substances in our diets, in our environments that we never had before. Um, things that God forbid us to consume, we consistently consume. It, and it, it's in all our food. We can't help but consume it. it. It's, well, a lot of our food isn't even food. So it, even when we try to keep the dietary laws, we end up consuming things that we shouldn't eat. We we stress the plants as well, don't we? W weren't they supposed to? Um, they were supposed to leave the first fruit, or leave it for a certain amount of years, and then offer up the first fruits to God. And they were supposed to leave the field um, so that it wasn't harvested, it wasn't tilled every seven years. Uh, I seem to remember reading somewhere that um, the actual the the fruit and the produce was much greater than it is today. And the Israelites had to obey special laws for that. And they, and they went back on that and they stressed the ground and they stressed the plants. And, you know, I can think back in just in my lifetime and it's gone from an apple a day will keep the doctor away to you need to have five bits of fruit and veg. And I think now they're saying you need to have 10 bits of fruit and veg every day. Well, I don't eat any fruit and hardly any vegetables. <laughs> I eat most of my diet is is meat. I mean, I eat some, but most of my diet is meat. It, it's 100% processed grass. 100% processed vegetable. So it, if, it, if I live a very long time, you know what to attribute it to. And if I croak, there's a lot of people today that eat mostly meat. It's the keto thing. I'm not a keto person, but most of my diet is simply meat and a few beers at night and that that's it i eat very little bread very little grain very little um carbohydrate right i i eat probably a couple of slices of tomato three or four days a week and and some cucumber with it what whatever i eat very little vegetables though i, I don't know if they're really that good for you at one time, I used to eat tons of broccoli and of all sorts of vegetables, but I'm, I don't really know that they're that good for me. Well, it's important to keep to the dietary laws, isn't it? Um, you know, one, one other thing, I, I I suspect that in order for them to live those those great lengths of time, I think that it is possible if they if their hormones kept producing. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons that causes the aging is the lowering of the hormones in both men and women and if you think that if sarah was able to have a have a child at the age of 90 or whatever then that men, means that uh, her hormones must have all still been producing as if she was at, at 20 years of age she must have set, had the same level of, of hormones and that would tie in with um with them living for so long and all all the research in anti-aging now is to, is to do with with hormones and, and keeping the hormones at a high level because in both men and women, they 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 low they uh, they reduce. And in fact, they've discovered um, testosterone actually stops your DNA from uncoupling. I forget the exact word for it, but that's what actually causes the causes the aging. Your DNA stops um, reproducing itself, and it starts un unraveling itself. And testosterone prevents that from happening. So I think they probably had much higher hormones than we have now and our testosterone has dropped uh, men's testosterone has dropped by 20 percent on average in the last 20 years 
So, you know, they're they probably hugely muscular blokes back then, I should imagine. You know, I was saying they're like sort of superhero types today. And a lot of it could have been to do with hormones. I mean, these things are all possible. It's not fantastic to think of people living that, that long, I don't think, in different conditions. Well, well, that's probably also tied to diet and, and custom work habits and things like that, but mostly to diet and the food we eat. That they, they, these, yeah, you know, these, that these Jew bastards have, have tried to push us off of meat. They're trying to push us off meat now. And they're trying to, um, this whole vegan movement is really taken off that they're actually, um, protesting restaurants now and, and holding demonstrations. And I saw a video of, of these vegans holding a demonstration inside of a pizza parlor in britain and one man got angry and punched one of them and knocked her out it, he was so he just wanted his pepperoni right <laughs> and, and I, that video was was published on youtube just about a week ago i think well well that this is going to become an issue and and vegans are going to become a sort of food antifa and these people actually think they have moral a moral premise to prevent other people from eating meat and meat eating in the mainstream media is actually starting to be discouraged. Oh, they're talking about banning it. There was, um, I think one barrister over here in Britain that was saying it should be banned. Uh, it's interesting that they're pushing all this vegan, ide vegan ideology and Jordan Peterson's daughter is pushing the opposite. She's got this thing called the lion diet where she says you just eat meat. No vegetables, no fruit, nothing. Just just eat meat, and that will make you super healthy. And apparently, Jordan Peterson has been on, on this diet, and his daughter's got this video, and and she's you know she's saying you should just eat meat, ignore this, um, eating vegetables. So could, could I be love true. eggs. I eat eggs. I eat cheese. I, I eat other things besides meat, but most of my, most of my diet is meat. I, I just just throw me a couple of um chicken legs on the grill and I'm happy, you know, or, a, or, or a hamburger or something or once in a while a steak and I'm happy. That's all I need. Yeah. Beef and lamb. I tend to go for as long as people aren't eating pork, then they're, they're keeping healthy. I think, I think that's caused so much harm to us. You know, I'm, I'm sure pork, shellfish, things like that. I, I don't eat any of it. You know, it's amazing, really, when you think about it. All all the brown people of the world don't eat it. It's a, it's against the the law for uh, the Hindus to eat it. It's against the law for the Muslims to eat it. It's against the law for uh, the Jews to eat it. And we stuff our faces with it, and we get all and we get all these diseases. They would probably if they were to eat the same way as us, they, they would probably have a life expectancy of about fifty. The non-whites, I think. Well, well, in in ancient times, in many Greek cities, swine were forbidden. And according to Herodotus, the Scythians did not eat swine. It was the Romans that ate everything, and and you could see that in in the um, the preserved murals and other artworks of Pompeii, that the pictures, the drawings, the paintings of the feasts, where where the Romans ate everything squid snail uh, um swine everything so so 
basically because Jews and Muslims were forbidden from eating pork to early Christians, it was a sign that you were a Christian, that you ate pork. It became a good thing to eat pork. And it still is today in the American South. Pork, eating pork proves you have faith in Christ to a lot of these white Southerners. Tragic. It's tragic, really. I mean, you really should look. Well, I believe it is tragic. I do believe it is tragic because that's a, it, it was originally a law for white people not to eat pork. And, and now it's become just the opposite. <laughs> you know, you can look at, you but can I look at pork. I hope I haven't eaten pork. I, I mean, every once in a while you're in a restaurant, you don't know what you're getting. But but I hope I haven't eaten pork or I've tried to abstain from pork since ninety-seven. Yeah, that is a risk when you when you go out to have a meal. But I mean, if you look at those dietary laws and you look at um the animals that they're saying you shouldn't eat, you only have to look at what those animals themselves eat to know that you shouldn't be eating them. Things like shellfish that are just eating raw sewage and, and carcasses. And, and when they say you shouldn't eat pigs and you, and you look at the things that, that pigs eat and then it's got, you know, obvious things on there like owls and, and dogs, but it, all the types of fish like that, the, the smooth fish, the catfish and shark and things like that. It, it's all animals that eat other animals, basically, or animals that eat carrion rather than animals that, um, just eat, eat grass, basically. And it, it says there you shouldn't eat, uh, things like badger. And you shouldn't eat, you shouldn't even eat things like rabbit, I believe. And that's an animal that digs down in, into the ground in the dirt. You know, why would you want to be eating something that digs grubs around in the dirt? Your body is a temple. So you, you want to be eating foods that are, are clean foods. And when you look at it that way, you know, it just makes total sense. You don't need to be told it in the Bible that it's a good idea to be eat, eating these animals and not eating those others. And it's just common sense, isn't it? Well, right. I mean, a, a rabbit is really like a rodent, but they're popular food here. In, in America, they're really popular because they're easy to raise at home. And a lot of self-sufficient people eat a lot of rabbit, unfortunately, because they're easy, they're cheap to raise. And they crap everywhere. They crap all around them as well. I think that's another part of the rules is, is if these animals live in filth. If they don't go out and bury well, it. Well, I don't know how we got on the food laws from Jasher, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's an interesting conversation for uh, for your listeners, Bill. I pray. I do. I, I, um, I don't know what more we could possibly say about Jasher. What does Jasher say about the food laws? I don't think it's got anything in there. I didn't come across anything. Okay. But I was just, not, I was just nothing, skimming through it. Not, nothing significant to think of, right? I'm no, surprised no. Jasher doesn't encourage Gentiles eating pork. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just skimmed through it again. Um, just pick like quickly trying to pick out bits from it because it was a good few years ago, the last time that I read it. But I, I just remembered thinking, you know, that it, it would be good to go into that someday and, and point out all the ways that it tries to, deflect from Christian identity and distract from it and, and subvert it and um, put across alternative explanations. 
So I just I just skimmed through it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend people people buy it. People should really get on at the at these Christian identity um, booksellers that are selling it because it's very subversive, and our enemies use it. You know, as I said, the uh, followers of Ben Classen they use it. I'm sure I've seen it mentioned in one of Ben Classen's books. Well, I'm sure they use it against Christian yeah, against identity. Against us. Against us, yeah. Well, you know, I have a lot of problems with old-time Christian identity pastors and teachers. I, I do. And and I, I've um, lost a lot of friends and listeners because I have problems with a lot of those old-time teachers. But they all push this book of Jasher. I don't know who, which of them really ever spoke out against it or wrote against it. Well, you've got to study to show yourself approved, haven't you? You know, Christian identity has got to, got to keep, you know, inspecting itself and seeing where it can improve and not just stay stagnant and think, well, we know it all because we don't. You know, you've got to be thorough. I mean, that, that's the good thing about you, Bill, with these, you know, these books that you've been bringing out where you're, you know, very academically and laboriously going through every, every single verse and examining it to find what, you know, what is close to get as close as you can to the truth with all the references. I and mean, nobody's ever done that before. And, you know, that, that needs doing. Well, well, that absolutely needs doing, but I realized in my very early Christian identity studies, that that did need doing. I read E. Raymond Kapp, I read Wesley Swift, they would talk about this or that or, or, or another thing, and, and they might mention that they read it in Pliny or, or Strabo or something, but they never actually cited it. They never actually told you precisely where it would be found. I, I remember reading a a, a something that E. Raymond Capt had said about Diodorus Siculus um, talking about Moses and the Exodus. So I decided I had to read Diodorus Siculus. And Diodorus Siculus is published by the um, Loeb Classical Library in 12 volumes. Now, they're not very big volumes. The Loeb Classics are, are great little books and that – because they have um, one page of English and the opposite page of the corresponding Greek or Latin, that they're not very, they don't take a long time to read, right? So, so there's not very much in one volume, but it's still 12 books. And I'm getting them sent to me two and three at a time. And I'm looking for this, I'm reading Diodorus and I'm into what he's saying. I mean, I'm taking notes and everything, but I'm really interested in finding this passage E. Raymond Kapp was talking about. And I get to volume eight and volume nine and volume 10, and I still hadn't found it. And I'm thinking to myself, did this guy tell me the truth? And, and volume 11, well, it's in there. It's in volume 12. So I had to read all 12 volumes to find what I was looking, looking for in the first place. But I took copious notes and decided after about six years of study that I was going to write my own historical essays. 
And I started probably around 2003 or 2004 um, when I wrote Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy, or maybe I wrote um, Dorian and Darian, Dan and Greeks first. I wrote the paper on the Phoenicians first. And I wrote that as a letter to Clifton Emmerheiser in um, 1999. So that's really the first historical paper I wrote. But my intent was to convince Clifton that the Phoenicians were the Israelites, not the Canaanites. And it took me two years to convince him of that and two letters. But once he got it, we, we were friends, right? And, and that's what started our relationship. But aside from that, most of my classical essays were written between, I, I would say, 2003 and 2006. My essays on classical history, the race in Genesis 10, all that stuff. And I wrote them because everything I had read in earlier, in my early Christian identity studies, when I was reading Christian identity books from other writers, which I stopped doing in 99. Everything I read was very poorly cited. It wasn't cited at all, half of it. And, and that's terrible. We need to prove Christian identity. We need to make um, academic essays with copious citations. So that's what I set out to do. That's why I do what I do to this day. Yeah, that's a big shame about um, E. Raymond Capp's books. I can't think of any citations in any of them. I mean, they're, they're great books, but uh, there's no there's no notes at the bottom of the page telling you where where he got the information from. <laughs> Having to read twelve books, right? He'll just mention <laughs> an author or or something like that, but he won't give um, the detailed citation that academic papers require, and that books like his really do need. So that's unfortunate. He's got letters after his name as well, and he still didn't produce any citations. I know. That's incredible. It's incredible. I I mean, Missing Links in Assyrian Tablets, I I thought was a great book, but it was terribly poor on citations. Yeah, that was the first book I got. That was the first book I got. I would recommend that as a book, actually. Yeah, I think I only read two or three books from E. Raymond Capt, and that was one of them. I still have it here somewhere. It's no longer on my primary bookshelf, though. It's out in the other room. I bet you got some treasures in there, Bill. Yeah, well, I have Clifton's library. So I really do have some treasures. Clifton had had probably 2,500 books. And I had about five or 600 before I in, inherited Clifton's library. So I don't even have them all on shelves yet because I don't have shelves for them yet. Wow. You have to get a dehumidifier. I had, I had some old books and they got really damp very quickly and and they got really damaged you know if you've got precious books maybe get a dehumidifier especially you know being yeah, Florida. Uh, my my main house is okay i i have a little um 
gazebo house in the back of my house that that's one room that that um i have a lot of books in including the books that i resell the books that i sell and i have um a big dehumidifier in that room that runs constantly there i need a dehumidifier the main house is the humidity is fine nice one it's got a central layer so that keeps the humidity down Thinking in the winter, we don't really have as much of a humidity problem here in Florida than we do in the summer. And the humidity here is always about 90% outside. But I managed to keep it down to about 50% where, where my books are stored. Most of them are on shelves here in the main house. The main house is only um, four rooms, so it's not really that big, right? <laughs> it's three rooms books. and a loft <laughs> upstairs that we use for a, that's our bedroom. You're living in a library. Yeah, basically. I think basically, um, I'm fighting with Melissa over the last couple of feet <laughs> of wall space that I want to put bookshelves on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can throw the book she of Jasher out anyway. In library. I'm sorry. You can throw the book of Jasher out anyway. Make room for another one there. I think I have two copies of it because Clifton had one. So I should use at least one of them for fuel. I, 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 I loathe to throw it away because I need to keep it around to show people the faults of it, right? Well, I think we've done well with that today. I pray. Thank you, Sven. And and this has been wonderful. And and we've had a few digressions here at the end, but it's conversational. And and I hope um amusing or instructive to somebody. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on, Bill. Thank you, Sven. Pray shall we. God bless. <laughs>